2 Corinthians chapter 5. But as we start, Roly, can we pass out those cards that you have? We'll pass them out as quickly as we can. Now, you're going to get a card in your hand. Is, um, <clears throat> just want you to put it in your Bible for the, t- for the moment, and we'll talk about it at the end of the service, okay? Um, you also have in your, in your bulletin today, uh, you have invitation cards to give to somebody else. The card you're getting right now is for you, okay? We will talk about it uh, later on. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> We're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 uh, this morning. Uh, wait till the guys have done that. You don't have to do anything with that card right now. Just hold on to it because we will talk about it uh, at the end of the message. I do want you to do something about, with it today, though. I want you to take and do something with that card today. All right. <clears throat> We're going to talk about being ambassadors for Christ today. <clears throat> and, you know, the truth is that uh, <clears throat> each one of us have a job, a ministry, a purpose, a focus. And if I ask you what you are, what you do, you're going to give me all kinds of different answers. But in eternal terms, you're an ambassador. In eternal terms, you're an ambassador. And that's a lofty title. That is a lofty title and a lofty work that you are called to to, to do. But in eternal terms, you're an ambassador. You're supposed to be doing the ministry of reconciling people. And, you know, that's not just something that's part of Christianity kind of out there in the fuzzy land. That's something you and I are supposed to be doing on a daily, on a regular basis. That's something that was always the plan. The plan was there was to be a snowball effect with Christianity. That's how Jesus set it up, right? There was 12 disciples, right? Well, they were supposed to start a snowball going that would get bigger and bigger and bigger as it went and it comes to us, and it's supposed to be getting bigger still. But sometimes, and over the years in Christianity, what's happened is sometimes the, bo- the, uh, the, the, the snowball has stopped rolling. And when the snowball stops rolling, what happens is a generation gets missed. So we're supposed to be the ambassadors that are out there. My prime task in this world is not to be a pastor. My pr- prime task in this world is to be an ambassador. Your prime task is not to be... Uh, whatever it is that you do, it's to be an ambassador. Right? Uh, that's a word of prayer, and then we'll read our text, and we'll, <clears throat> we'll dig in. Father, would you bless us this morning? Uh, Lord, you've given us a lofty title. You've given us a lofty work. And Lord, <clears throat> uh, we are children of the earth, and we so get, get so easily wrapped up in everything that we're doing, Lord, and we miss what it is that you want us to do. Now, Lord, would you help us today? Put your hand upon us. Help us. Bless us, Lord. May, through your Spirit, Lord, just give us an insight into what it is that you're asking of us. And, Lord, give us courage to know that uh, if we will obey, you will empower, and we can achieve great things for you. Lord, we're looking to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Now, verse 17 uh, is a very familiar verse to you. Uh, many of you could quote it. Uh, But it's the beginning, uh, in a sense, of a passage, right? Verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, 
We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, we've been going through Paul's ministry and Paul's life. We've looked at the uh, judgment seat of Christ. And um, we're coming now to a place where he really is kind of putting it up to us. He's telling us that he's an ambassador. And you're an ambassador. He's telling us that he has a ministry and you have a ministry. And it's so easy for us in 21st century Christianity to just miss this one. See, the world has changed. It's changed completely. And it's easy for us to just sit back and and say, well, what can I do? But there's lots that we can do. In fact, there's lots that we need to do. He starts by telling us that we're new creatures. A new creature. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Right? This is the reality. You may not feel like it, and there are reasons why you might not feel like it, but when you got saved, you became a new creature. You, could be, you, you became a different kind of a creature. Now, there's a reality in which you have to live it to experience it. Right? You have to live it. The Bible talks about abiding in Christ. The Bible talks about uh, not I, but Christ. The Bible talks about reckoning ourselves dead to sin and alive unto God. And we need to understand, yes, that there's a part of this that we reckon it to be true, and it becomes true. So you may be here this morning, you may be saying, okay, well, I know I'm a new creature because the Bible says it, but I don't feel any different. Right? Well, the reason you don't feel different is because you don't step out by faith and trust what God has said about you. And if you do, you're going to find that it's very real. Right? Because as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. And you're supposed to walk. Your Christianity is a new life. Now, any man, anyone, it's open to anyone. The reality is, and it's in Christ. It's not in religion. It's not in the list of do's and don'ts that you do. It's in this relationship. It's in Christ. It's enjoying this relationship with him that you're going to find this new creature. But, and this work of a new creation, of a new creature, Spurgeon says this about it. He says, it took a greater work of God to make you a new creature than it did to create the world. And his basic reasoning is this. He says, uh, because the world didn't fight against him. He started out uh, creating from nothing. There was nothing to fight against him, but you fought against him. You fought against your nature fought against him. You opposed him, your stubborn will, your prejudices, uh, your love of iniquity, all those things fought against God, but God is able to take and make you a new creature, a different kind of a creature. See, the old creature was all inward focused, wasn't he? old creature was all about me, but the new creature is outward focused, focused on God and focused on others. And you're supposed to be a new creature. And <clears throat> this new creature is not based upon you learning how to control yourself and live the Christian life. It's not based on that. It's a new creature. God created something different. Now, yes, you've got to live it, but you've been made a new creature. A completely different kind of a creature. You know, I can look back at myself before I was saved and I can think, you know, that was a different guy. I feel like I've had three or four different lives because I look back at my life at different points in my life and I think, you know, that was a totally different person back then. And, you know, you've got to look back at your life before you were saved and say, that was a totally different person. 
Now, I realize you, may, you might have been saved when you were young, and you, and you think, well, that's kind of hard. I understand that. I understand you. For most of your life, you've, uh, you've lived a Christian life. But understand this, that you're a new creature. You were made not to focus on yourself. You were made not to focus on this world and the things of this world. You were made to focus on him and the things of another world. This world's not your home. You're just passing through. You're on your way somewhere. And you weren't left here to enjoy the scenery. And you weren't left here to make money. You were left here to achieve his purposes. You've been left on this planet to do what he wants you to do. And you need to reckon on, first of all, the fact that you're a new creature. And then secondly, you need to reckon on the fact of his power to do it. His power can make you what you ought to be. His power, not your power. His power, he can do it. You may think it's impossible for me. You may think, oh, no, I'm going to go home feeling guilty again because pastor's going to talk about winning souls and being an ambassador and I'm just not that and it's never going to be me. You, you, you may feel that, but it's not, we're not talking about your power. We're not talking about what you can do in and of yourself. We're talking about your calling and his power. When you're willing to obey your calling, you'll find his power involved in it. So first of all, you're a new creature. Secondly, I want you to see this, though. You've got a new master, a new source as far as life is concerned. And all things are of God. Now, the rest of the verse we'll deal with under the next point. Uh, but all things are of God. Do you realize that when you got saved, it wasn't a case of he saved you and he said, now go on, you, you get on with your life and do the best you can. That when you got saved, it became not I but Christ. That you became his hands, his feet, touching the world. His voice, touching the world. That you became his. That you were no longer your own. You were bought with a price and your job was to glorify him. And so what you've got now is you've got a new master. You're, you're under new management. You're under new control. You're going a different direction, different life. It, it counts in a whole different way. And I think sometimes we, we need to pause and, and remember that. I'm not my own anymore. I belong to him. Now, if I don't engage with that thought, I just continue on living my life as though it's all about me, don't I? And lots of believers do. I think we all uh, have experienced that at some times where we're living our life as though it's our own. I can do what I like. It's my own life. It's my life. I'm going to do, do, do what I like. I mean, that, that's a virtue in the world, isn't it? independence and living for yourself and doing your own thing, that, that's considered to be a virtue out there. And, you know, we're very much affected by the world around us and we can, we can live that way too and think that way about our lives. But no, it's not my life. I have a new master. Now you say, so does that mean I'm nothing now? No, that means you're a child. Look at what you've got I, in the Bible. You're a child of God. You're a joint heir with Christ. You've got great things going on. But you have a new master. What does your master want you doing? What does the God wants you doing? You say, well, I'm so up to my tonsils in living, I don't have time to think about that. That's a serious problem, isn't it? Now, I understand it. Because life is kind of in your face, isn't it? It's there all the time. It's kind of uh, pressing you to do this and do that. And there are, there, you know, there are time schedules and there are needs all around you and there are stuff you're supposed to be doing. I understand that. You're under a new master now. You're not your own anymore. You're under a new master. What does he want you doing? What is this master that you've got? How does he want you to spend your life? And, and let me ask you this question. 
If he's going to say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant at the end, what is he expecting you to do to achieve that? Is he expecting you to live your own life and do your own thing? Or is he expecting you to come to the place where you do what he would have you to do? I don't think it's hard, and I don't think it's rocket science, and I don't think it needs, you know, <clears throat> we need to spend our, our lives working this out. I think, we, you know, God's well able to communicate and to let us know what he wants us to do. One of the things he wants us to do, he's telling us about in this passage. I don't, I don't think we have to make it very difficult, in, or, in other words, in order to find out what God would have us to do. But I think in our hearts we need to say, hang on a minute, I'm not my own anymore. I have a new master. I'm under new management. Lord, what would you have me to do? How would you have me to live my life? You know, I think God has a vast army that covers the world. But I think he has a vast army that are not, haven't got their radios tuned in. I think very often we've taken it that, well, okay, I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven. And um, that means I should read my Bible. I should go to church and so on. But we've not come to the place where we've said, no, my life belongs to him. You know, Paul says it to us. He says it to us several times. He says it's reasonable for us to give ourselves to him because he paid the price for us. And, you know, we subscribe to that. We think that's reasonable. But we need to do it. We need to actually yield ourselves to him and say, Lord, what would you have me to do? It's not my life. It's your life. And by the way, if any man, any person who is in Christ is a new creature, that means Nobody is excluded from this new master. It's not like you can say, well, you know what, that's for such and such a section of Christianity. Or that's for these people. I'm just an ordinary Joe Blow. I'm going to just live my life and do my thing. No, no, no. All of us, all of us have a new master with new instructions and our life is to be different. Now, don't get me wrong. He's not called you to a life uh, where of asking you to do the impossible. He's asking you to do the impossible, and he's saying, I'm going to empower you to do it. And that's going to be the basis uh, of what you and I are going to see at the judgment seat of Christ. Did I do what he wanted me to do? Did I live my life to achieve what he wanted me to achieve? Was I willing, and did I let him lead in my life and do what he wanted me to do? It's a big question, isn't it? But it's a question we all got to answer. Sooner or later, eventually, it'll become the only question. You know, when I stand before him, I will not be concerned about cars or houses or money or... Uh, I won't even be concerned about the size of the congregation on a Sunday morning. That won't, that won't be my concern. My concern will just be one thing. Did David O'Gorman do what he wanted him to do? Did I do what he... And that's the only thing he's going to be concerned with. He's not going to question me about what somebody else did. He's going to ask me, did I do what he wanted me to do? And you know, in order, for, in order for that to be real in my life, I've got to put my will to one side and say, okay, Lord, now what is your will for me? And that's the hardest thing for us. It's hard for us to hear his will because we're so full of our own will in our own way. But we're on this earth for a short time, and he's got a plan for us, and we're under new ownership. We need to let him lead in our lives. We need to let him have his way in our lives. We need to let him achieve what he wants to achieve in our lives. All right. <laughs> um, so point three, we have a new ministry. All right. <clears throat> What's this new ministry? 
Um, the new ministry is the ministry of reconciliation. Let, let's catch it in the last verse and in this verse again, right? And all things are of God. That's our new master who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now he says it again in the next verse. Um, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now, what does reconciliation mean? What does it mean? We, you know, we talk about big words sometimes, and we need to actually define them and understand them. What does it mean uh, to reconcile somebody? Well, it's two people who have, for some reason, have a problem with each other. They've had a falling out. They've had a disagreement, and they're no longer talking, communicating, or relating to each other, right? And to reconcile them would be to bring them together and restore them to fellowship, put them back in the place where they were communicating and relating to each other again. That's a big word, but that's basically what it means. So when it talks about reconciling the world to himself, what are we talking about here? What are we talking about when God said he, he was reconciling the world? Well, God had a problem with the world, didn't he? Problem called sin. Because of Adam's sin, it was passed on to all of us, and we all sin by nature, and we sin by choice. And sin makes us enemies of God. Well, we were enemies. When we were sinners, we were enemies. Sin makes us enemies. So there was a problem. God won't look on sin. God can't look on sin. God is so holy that he wants nothing to do with sin. Sin is excluded from heaven. So there was a problem. And God made a reconciliation. Now, it's interesting in this case that the one that reconciled is the one that was offended against. Normally, we expect the person uh, who does the offending to do the reconciling, but in this case, that's not what happened. God did the reconciling. And the conditions that God set for this reconciliation, he paid. He paid the price. He actually cleared the debt himself. Because he wanted to reconcile us to himself. Now, I don't understand that. I, I, I really don't understand. Why would God want to be friends with me? Why would God want to be friends with you? And I, I don't have an answer for you. But he does. He wants reconciliation. He longs for reconciliation. The Bible says that there's joy in heaven over one soul that repents. Every time somebody on this sin-cursed planet repents and turns to God, there's a party in heaven. God gets happy, and he throws a party. Every time. That's what he does. You, know, you look at the parable of, uh, of the prodigal son, and the parable of the prodigal son is that the father is God. And he throws a party. Because someone was lost and they're found because they were dead and now they're alive again. He throws a party. God wants reconciliation in the worst possible way. In fact, God wants reconciliation so much that he was willing to pay all the price in Jesus. Right? Look what it says. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. He he did it in Christ. He reconciled the world uh, to himself. The Father lay upon the Son all the guilt and wrath our sin deserved, and Jesus bore it in himself perfectly, totally satisfying the wrath of God for us. And by the way, you know what? That is too deep for mortal flesh to actually understand. How did Christ pay all the price? 
How did he do it? He did, though the Bible tells us. On the cross, Jesus became, as it were, an enemy of God who was judged and forced to drink the cup of the Father's fury so that we would not have to drink that cup. When Jesus was on the cross, he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Whatever happened between them in those moments, it cut right through to the very heart of God. And there was a separation between Father and Son so that we could be reconciled to him. And a reconciliation was made. He reconciled the world to himself. I read a story just yesterday about uh, Korean believers. And uh, in the early part of the 20th century, that would be the early 1900s, the the Japanese went into Korea. And Korea had been invaded many times, but the Japanese were the most brutal uh, people that ever invaded them. And they were cruel, and they were brutal, and they killed and they maimed, and they particularly hated Christians. And so what they did was they passed a law and they boarded up all the Christian churches. Okay, that's what you always do when you want to get rid of Christianity, but it never works, by the way. You can board up the churches because the churches are not Christi- Christianity, the people are. And what you'll find, Christians will meet somewhere. But anyway, they boarded up this little church in the countryside, and the pastor came and he pleaded with the commander uh, to open the church so that he could have a service. And so he said no and refused and so on. And finally, one day he said, okay, you can have one service. So they were going to have one service. They were going to be free to come together in this church and and worship God and sing his praises. And and they they were so excited about it. And so on the morning, um, the church had been opened up. The boards had been taken off the windows and they were all uh, uh, coming to church. And everybody came to church and they were just thrilled. They were excited about this opportunity. And so they they went in, they sang the praises. Uh, of the Lord. Uh, They were having their church services. They were still singing when they heard some noise outside. And what the Japanese did was they boarded up the church again with all the people, men, women, and children in it. Uh, They doused it in kerosene and they set it on fire. Everybody in the church died. They were still singing, they say, when the roof fell in and they died because they realized they weren't getting out. There was no way for them to get out. And it was such a cruel, horrible, brutal deed that it was etched into the memory of the Korean people. Then the occupation passed and they were free. And in 1974, a group of Japanese pastors went to visit Korea. And they came to the site where a marker had been placed over this church explaining what had happened. And these Japanese pastors were devastated that their fellow countrymen, had been responsible uh, for the murder, the horrible treatment of these believers. And so they went back to Japan and they raised money, and they raised enough money to build a new church. And they came back and they built a new church and a service was called, but you know what? The Korean people were still having a hard time trusting these believers. They were still having a hard time because the bitter taste was in their mouths. Wouldn't you have a hard time with that? These believers that were from Japan. But during that service, heaven came down and they forgave and there was a meeting. There was a reconciliation between these people. Now, what's interesting about that is that the offended party 
did the reconciling. They, sorry, the ones that had been uh, caused the offense did the reconciling. But you know what? When it came to our reconciliation with God, the one who was offended against did the reconciling. And you know, you say, but I didn't do anything like that on him. Well, you know what? When Jesus was on the cross, crying in agony, it was your sin. It was my sin. And we like to make a collect of the sins of the world, don't we? But you know what? The day you got saved, it wasn't the sins of the world. It was your sin, wasn't it? And the reality is he paid for my sin as an individual. He reconciled me to himself by paying the price for my sin. And he paid all of it. And all of it was paid. And it's clear. And I'll never go to hell. And God has made friends with me based on that. And he will never forsake me. He promises me. He paid the price for my sin. And you know what? He says this. He says he gives you the ministry of reconciliation. He says he gives you the word of reconciliation. And the gospel is the word of reconciliation. He says, I've made it easy. I've paid the price. I've made a way to reconcile. Now go and tell them. Tell them all that there's reconciliation available. Tell them all that I won't hold their sin against them. Tell them all that I'm willing to forgive, that I'm willing to put it away completely. Tell them all that I'm willing to to, to call the, the, the deal set and paid for if they'll only come to me. That's what he does. And he gives you the ministry of reconciliation. You know, the Bible's called good news. The Bible's not, good, not just good news, though. The Bible's the good news, isn't it? It's the best news anybody's ever heard. You mean to say I'm a sinner deserving hell? And at no cost to me, Jesus paid the price for my sin and he will receive me back to himself? That's the best news that's ever been. I don't know why it took me so long to get my head around it. And you know what? He says to me, go tell other people. Tell them all what I've done. Tell them all about this marvelous thing I've done. Tell them all about this wonderful good news. Go tell them all what I've done for them. You know what? He's called us to a ministry. Let me give you... One other illustration. In Syria today, over the past six years, the war has been going on in Syria, civil war and all kinds of other war thrown into the civil war, right? 400,000 people have died. You've seen the pictures. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? It's heartbreaking. You see people with no homes, with no hope, uh, and they're the ones that have lived through it. Well, say somebody came to you today and they said, listen, I have a deal that I know is good for both sides. If you will just take the deal and f- go over there and present the deal, I mean, it's, it's a win-win for everybody in the situation. Will you go? Well, you'd say, yeah, I'll go. I don't want to see any more of those poor people dying. I'll go. I'll, I'll go <clears throat> and, and try and talk to them. If there's, if there's a hope of, of, of saving another 400,000 lives, I'll go. Wouldn't you? But you know what? God has given you a ministry of reconciliation. He's given you a ministry 
of reconciling people to himself. And the deal couldn't be better. What's it going to cost? Nothing. Just come. Just believe. Just trust. It's going to cost you nothing. Just come. And you know what? He's given us a ministry, given us the power, given us the deal. And he says, go. Just tell them. You know, what delusion is it that prevents us from going with it? Why do we look at somebody and say, oh, I couldn't say it to them? Somebody who's bound for hell, but we won't open our mouths, we won't pass them a tract, because, well, it's too embarrassing. Because they wouldn't listen. Because, oh, listen, what, del- what, what kind of a delusion are we under that stops us from going with these, this message? You say, but it's harder in this day and age. Yeah, well, think about Jerusalem. They crucified Christ. Right? <clears throat> they crucified him to shut him up and to kill off the movement he was starting. And you know what Peter did on the day of Pentecost? He stood up and he preached and he said, you crucified him with wicked hands. And you know what happened? The church exploded into life. It exploded into life. Do you know what? If we will declare the message God has given to us in the power of the Spirit, the message of reconciliation, life will come. We'll be amazed at what happens. And you know it. Because you've seen it happen from time to time when you've actually had the courage and the, and the boldness to step forth with the word and tell people. Listen, he's given you a ministry of reconciliation. But it gets better. Look what he's done too. He's given you a new title. He's given you a new name. He's put a name on your ministry. Verse 20 and 21 says, Now, then we are ambassadors for Christ. Did you know that you're an ambassador? We are ambassadors for Christ. I want you to do something this morning. We don't normally do this. But I want you to turn to the person on your right-hand side, and I want to say, you to say to them, Hello, Mr. Ambassador or Mrs. Ambassador. Turn to the person on your right-hand side and say, Hello, Mr. or Mrs. I know it's a bit, I know it's a bit weird. Uh, okay, now... now Turn to the person on your Turn to the person on your left and do the same, all right? Huh. Now, now, you never thought you were going to get a title like that, did you? You never expected that anyone would give you the title of ambassador. That's kind of a lofty term. You get to live on Aylesbury Road if you're an ambassador. You get to live in a big house with servants and everything else if you're an ambassador. Now, you're not getting that, okay? I just want to, want to give you a heads up there. Not now, anyway, but you do have a mansion over the hilltop uh, that's coming up. And listen, you're going to be pretty happy one day. But you have a ministry. You have a title. God wants you to be an ambassador for him. Now, an ambassador, there's much in the idea. An ambassador doesn't speak to please his audience, but the king who sent him. An ambassador does not speak on his own authority. His own opinions or or demands mean little. He simply says what he has been commissioned to say. But an ambassador is more than a messenger. He is also a representative, and the honor and reputation of his country are in his hands. You're an ambassador. You say, come on, pastor. That may be what the Bible says. I don't feel like, no, you're an ambassador. You say, but I'm only saved three weeks. 
doesn't matter. You're an ambassador. You've got a title. <clears throat> Story told about W.D. Dunn, the evangelist. He was holding uh, a campaign of gospel meetings in Motherwell in Lanarkshire in Scotland. Uh, and his friend, uh, Mr. Carr of Carlisle, died. Now, it's about a <clears throat> 90-mile uh, trip. And those are the days going before cars. It wouldn't, wouldn't bother us today. But he worked out that he could actually make it down on the express train uh, in time to make it back for his evening meeting. So he took off to go to the funeral, attended the funeral. But as things happen, he arrived back at the station just a few minutes late. And <clears throat> there was one train going, but it was a slow train. Uh, and it would, would arrive very much later. But there was an express train going to Glasgow that would pass through Motherwell. Uh, and, um, but it wasn't stopping at Motherwell. So he went to the station master and he says, listen, is there any possible way that the, the, the express train could stop at Motherwell to let me get off for a meeting that I have uh, tonight? And the, the station master said to him, no, there's no way. We can't do that. That's impossible. And then the station master looked at him and he said, hold on a minute, though. Um, I have authority for a minister to actually stop the train. I mean, he was talking about, a, you know, an MP, a minister, minister of the parliament. I have, I have authority. Are, are you by any chance an MP? And he said, oh, no, I'm not an MP. I'm actually more than that. I'm an ambassador. Right? And he said, okay, then I can stop the train for you. Right? <clears throat> because he was an ambassador. And then he thought bad of it. And he said, <clears throat> uh, W.D. Dunn, uh, Dunn thought bad of it. And he said, yeah, I better go and tell the guy what I mean by that. So he went and he told him. He explained, listen, I'm not an ambassador of a country. I'm an ambassador from much higher authority. And I have a thousand people waiting to hear me speak tonight. And the station master said, okay, the train's going to stop at Motherwell. <clears throat> right? Now, that's amazing. That's kind of the, the privileges of being an ambassador. There are going to be privileges for you of being an ambassador. There are, going to be, there are going to be days when you're going to rejoice in the fact that you're an ambassador. But you know what? Today's the days you get to do the ambassadoring, if that's the right word. Today's the day you get to be an ambassador. Don't miss the chance. You know, <clears throat> life is fleeting. Life is going very fast. It goes, goes through our hands like sand, doesn't it? Today, you get the opportunity to be an ambassador for him. You gotta speak for him. You gotta talk to people about him. You gotta invite people to be reconciled. Because that's your ministry. That's your life. You say, I'm not very good at it. Listen, you don't have to be good at it. You just have to put yourself out there. He's good at it. But you're his hands, you're his voice, you're his feet to reach a world today. I'm gonna ask you this week to invite people out to the Easter service. That's not huge. But <clears throat> I'm not asking you to just kind of throw it over your shoulder. You wouldn't like to go to, a, go to an Easter service, would you? I'm going to ask you to actually write it down on a sheet, pray about it, and invite people out. I honestly believe we can double our numbers for Easter Sunday morning. And that's not just an exercise in numbers. Double our numbers means more than 100 people in here to hear the gospel that don't normally come. Double our numbers means we get to do the work of being an ambassador as a church. I'm going to ask you to take and to encourage some people out this week that will actually come to our Easter services 
not next Sunday, but the Sunday after, and we'll have a special service, and we'll plan on reaching people with the gospel. But I'm going to ask you to undertake and to do it. I'm going to show you a short video here to encourage you, and then I'll talk to you some more about it, right? Josh, can you... Listen, the thought there is, listen, you don't know who would actually come. You look at your life and you look at the people around you and you say, they don't be interested. And you become the judge of whether they'd be interested or not. Just invite them. Invite somebody to come out. Listen, pull out that card that you got passed out at the beginning of the service. This one here, right? Okay. And here's the challenge to you, right? And let me say this. I talked to somebody about this a couple of weeks ago, and um, they said this. They said that doubling the numbers in the church, that's a bit much. 25% would be pretty good. Right? <clears throat> and um, they were not very faithful about it, but they, then they invited somebody out, and they realized that if everybody invites somebody out and they come, it becomes 100%. So that person became 100%. Right? So you can invite somebody out and... Have them come to church, and if you do it, and everybody else does it, we'll end up with 100 people here, over 100 people here. If everybody invites three people out, and they all come, we won't know where to put them, but we won't worry about that, folks, all right? We'll we'll fix that problem when when we get to it. And by the way, we work on the parking. I'll tell you what we're going to do with the parking next week. We'll work on the parking, right? But here's the idea. You're going to write down names, and do it today. Please don't wait until during the week sometime till you get, do it today. Write down names today. And then you're going to pray about it. Leave it in your Bible and pray about them. Every time you have your devotions, pray about it. And invite them. Talk to them. You've got a card in your <clears throat> bulletin there, uh, an invitation card. Right? There are more invitation cards. You're not limited to one. There are more invitation cards on the back. But invite some people out. Encourage some people to come and actually 
get involved and be a part of the Easter service. Right? Now, we know what we're doing. Any questions on it? Know what we're doing? Listen, go with it. I know, you know, you say, oh, it'll never happen. Just go with it. And if you'll go with it, you'd be amazed at what God would do. You have the ministry of reconciliation. You are an ambassador. This is an easy way for you to actually put it into action. Invite somebody out to church for Easter Sunday. Let us stand.